0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. A British F-35 crashes while flying from HMS Queen Elizabeth.
1: I'm glad to say that the pilot was recovered and is okay.
0: Now the UK tries to recover the jet and its top secret technology. Also on SITREP this week, blowing up a satellite, massing troops near Ukraine and stoking a migrant crisis. What is Russia up to? A warning to the world about what might be the next pandemic.
2: Biological science could be the existential threat to the 21st century that atomic science was to the 20th century.
0: And could the UK's fighter jets eventually be fueled by just air and water?
1: We were surprised even when we put it in the test cell. We didn't have to adjust the engine in any way and it just worked straight out the door. It was lovely.
0: First this week, one of Britain's newest fighter jets has crashed at sea. Its pilot ejected safely. The Defence Secretary gave details a few hours later.
1: An F-35B fighter ditched in the sea shortly after take from HMS Queen Elizabeth, the carrier uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, I'm glad to say that the pilot was recovered and is OK, and we will recover the aircraft. It hasn't affected our ongoing operations, which we will continue. Uh, and we'll obviously investigate the cause uh, of that uh, accident.
0: Well, with us is Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark, also BFBS reporter James Hurst. James, what more do we know?
3: So the plane was from uh, the Royal Navy Dam Buster Squadron, which has been embarked uh, on HMS Queen Elizabeth through this carrier strike group operation. And the two most important things are are really what you heard there from the Defence Secretary. First of all, this was an accident. It's not seen as hostile action. Uh, And secondly, the pilot is okay to use the Defence Secretary's phrase. We we, we don't know any more about his condition. Obviously, ejection is quite a, a big matter. The investigation we know is going to focus on the possibility of human error or technical failure, that investigation will take as long as it takes, and it depends in in a significant part on the recovery of the plane.
0: And how hard will that recovery be?
3: The key factor is how deep in the Mediterranean Sea it is. We don't know where in the Mediterranean it is. The reason I'm certain that the Ministry of Defence will not say is because this is a, a top secret aircraft. It is packed with technology. They do not want enemies getting even a fragment of this plane, even things like the material science involved in, in making the stealth shell. Now, in terms of how deep, on average, the Mediterranean's about a mile deep, in, you know, and in oceanographic terms, that's that's relatively shallow. Deepest recess of the Med is about three miles. I wouldn't be surprised if we see HMS Echo or Enterprise heading to the area, they're UK survey vessels. It is worth noting though, in terms of the investigation, F-35 is a highly digitally connected plane, so the investigators may have some significant flight data even before any data record recorder is recovered.
0: James, thank you. Uh, Michael Clark. the F-35B is still a very new aircraft. What's its safety record like?
3: Uh, well,
4: so far, it's extremely good. I mean, these things are measured in um, every 100,000 uh, hours of of working, of flying. And in the first 100,000 hours of the F-35's life, when it was being tested, there were no uh, fatalities. There were two or three incidents of fires. A couple of those were on the ground. No crashes at all. There's been one crash or near crash uh, which the Americans suffered. But the safety record is extremely good. And certainly compared to most aircraft, I mean, you'd expect in 100,000 hours of flying time, you expect, you know, three or four fatal crashes. There have been up to seven or eight in some uh, older aircraft. And, you know, the famous starfighter, you know, the F-104. I mean, the the German uh, Air Force used to fly the F-104 and they lost 30 percent, 30 percent to crashes it was awful now so this the safety record of this is, is very good so far very good
0: HMS Queen Elizabeth of course is on her way home from what's appeared until now a pretty successful first deployment obviously this will have been an incredibly difficult day for all on board does this undo what they've achieved on a mission to project UK power
4: Uh, No, no, not at all. I mean, I think in a way, this proves that the system works. A crash on takeoff or a failure, probably an engine failure uh, on takeoff, is less serious than an engine failure, if that's what it is, on coming into land. And the fact is, they've lost the aircraft, which, they, as as James said, they will move heaven and earth to recover. They picked up the pilot. I mean, there would have been a Merlin helicopter, maybe two Merlins, um, hovering in any case for search and rescue operations. Whenever aircraft are taking off from a carrier, there's always a couple helicopters in the air precisely to pick up anybody who gets into difficulties or has to eject. So, I mean, I'm sure what the uh, commanders will say of the, of the carrier group is, look, you know, this is just another thing. It happens, these things happen. And when it happened, we dealt with it exactly, exactly, and precisely as we were meant to deal with it.
0: Just another thing, but £100 million each. How damaging is that?
4: Well, yes. We, we had 48 of these aircraft. Now we've got 47. Uh, it's a small fleet. The monetary loss is, uh, is important. The, the, the loss of one aircraft out of 48 is no big thing. There will be uh, attrition rates to worry about. But I, I think, as James said, it's the recovery of this aircraft which is the, the big story here. They won't want to talk about it very much, but believe me, they will really want to get hold of this airframe and make sure that it's in our hands and nobody else's.
0: Michael, stay with us. Shortly, we'll look at a technological breakthrough that could be key for the future of the F-35. Before that, Russia. The chief of the defence staff has warned the risk of accidental war with Russia could now be higher than even during the Cold War. His comments about escalation leading to miscalculation were focused on a reported build-up of 90,000 Russian troops on its border with Ukraine, making some fear an invasion is planned. And also, Moscow's part in the massing of thousands of migrants on the Belarus-Poland border, which NATO has branded weaponized migration. And just to add to that, Russia then test-fired a missile into space, smashing one of its old satellites into more than 1,500 pieces of potentially deadly space debris, forcing astronauts on the International Space Station to shelter in their evacuation craft. So, what is Russia up to? Mary Dajesky is a columnist for The Independent and its former Moscow correspondent. Mary, has Vladimir Putin deliberately timed
5: all these events together, do you think? Or
0: or is it a little more organic than that?
5: I think it's not just a little more organic. I think it's much more organic. I think that really an awful lot of people in the West are putting together a whole load of things that actually don't belong together at all. The idea that Russia's hand is to be seen behind the migrant crisis in uh, Belarus, I think, is Completely wrong. The question of whether Russia is massing troops anywhere near the Ukrainian border is highly questionable. We saw similar allegations last April, which turned out to be hugely exaggerated and also to be presenting um, Russian troop movements as though they were in offensive mode rather than as they very much appear both now and then in defensive mode so i think that there's that there's a lot that is being connected from here that if you were to look at it from moscow it would not look connected at all
0: So are you saying that the information that people
5: are using to to make these assertions is wrong? I'm not saying that all the information is wrong. I'm saying that it's being viewed through a prism which puts all this together and reaches a certain conclusion, which I think is simply not justified. My view is that Russia is actually completely horrified by what's going on at the poland belarus border. This is an attempt by Lukashenko to get the West's attention, but also to get Moscow's attention, it puts Russia in a very difficult position. It's it, it's a distraction. It damages Russia. The threat mm. from Lukashenko to cut off gas supplies um, that run through Belarus, that is a huge threat, not mm. just to us, but to Russia, because it casts doubt on the reliability of Russian energy supplies. And that's something okay. that Russia has been very keen to emphasise.
0: Michael Clark, how how do you see this? Do you see that Russia is an innocent party in all of this and is not doing what uh, the West is alleging?
4: Well, I I think, you know, President Putin is a great opportunist. And I agree with Mary, these things tend to arise because they arise. It's just sort of events pile on events. But what we do know about President Putin is that when he's faced with dilemmas, he tends to take the riskier option, because he likes to keep his opponents wrong footed. And so this may certainly not be a, a calculated series of pressure points, which you've got some sort of strategy behind them. I think that's extremely unlikely. But the fact that President Putin as it were, tries to use some of these things to get out of the of the dilemmas that these put him in. Uh, He tries to use them to his advantage, I think is to be expected. And the West has got to get away from a narrative that a war is about to begin. But I have to say that that events around the Ukrainian border are not very favorable, because the fact is, it isn't that Russian troops have moved up to the Ukrainian border, but they never withdrew very far the last time they were there. And that's always the problem.
0: And um, Michael, the UK has hundreds of troops in Poland and Estonia. Will these increased tensions be having any effect on their day-to-day at the moment?
4: Uh, I don't think so. No, there's um, uh, about a thousand troops on uh, Operation Tractable, um, but they've got their jobs to do and they'll do that. And that's a reassurance mission. But certainly the intelligence effort will be ramped up. So there'll be a lot more, a greater number of intelligence officers as we're reporting back what they've seen to try to create a, a more accurate picture. But the troops that, we, that Britain has in Estonia and Poland are not really there for any big uh, activities. They're there as reassurance that we care about Article 5 uh, within the NATO uh, alliance.
0: Yeah. Mary Dijewski, the Defence Secretary paid a diplomatic visit to Ukraine on Tuesday, saying afterwards, our governments have no desire to be adversarial or seek in any way to strategically encircle or undermine the Russian Federation. Uh, but he talked about the concern of the military build-up around the borders of Ukraine and emphasised Ukraine's national sovereignty. Will that
5: have an impact on the Kremlin? Well, I think it it depends where you think the Kremlin is at the moment, if you like, on the Ukraine Where do you think it is? Well, I think that for quite a while, Russia has been looking for a solution in eastern Ukraine for the Donbass, and that it's not a solution that would involve having Russian troops on the ground at all. I think Russia wants out of there. The problem is that the the Minsk Agreement has really fallen to pieces, and the sort of space that there is for any sort of settlement there has uh, has rather vanished. Mm. And, and I, you know, I would also say that the extent to which NATO, in particular, but also the UK, is almost, to my mind, talking up. Um, a conflict between Ukraine and Russia, the extent to which there are repeated and regular exercises in the Black Sea. When you look at Russian troop movements, really, if you were looking at it from Moscow, you would say these are defensive Russian troop movements looking at what's going on, particularly in the Black Sea.
0: And Mary, let's just talk about uh, Russia Test firing this missile into space, smashing one of its old satellites into more than fifteen hundred pieces. That clearly was a deliberate action. They must have known the kind of international response they so are going to get to that.
5: Um, yes and no. I mean, it's obviously um, a, a hugely attention-seeking operation. It also has to be said, you know, presumably it could have gone wrong, and if it, you know, if it could have gone wrong, that could have been dangerous. But I think it's more from from the demonstrative perspective um that russia wanted to what wanted to get itself noticed as a power and um to operate that came completely out of the blue really but i've also seen reports you know i don't know about the technicalities of this but i have seen reports that have said that um some of the western reporting um and i would actually include yours there where you where, where you talk about the satellite was <laughs> exploded into however many you know million pieces um that's what happens if something explodes and i think that the distance that anything was coming in anywhere near endangering anything else including the international space station i mean i think that has been hugely exaggerated
0: mary Dijaski good to speak to you thank you for your time Now, a world record and a moment of aviation history. On an airfield in Gloucestershire, an RAF test pilot has made the world's first ever flight using 100% synthetic fuel. Its ingredients are just air and water. The engineer who developed it once designed cars for Formula One. Now he says he can help the RAF's jets go green by 2040. Simon Newton was there to witness this historic flight.
1: It looked like any other takeoff. A tiny microlight getting airborne from what used to be RAF Kemble. But this was different. In her fuel tank, 100% fossil-free synthetic gasoline made from just water, thin air and renewable energy. At the controls, Group Captain Willie Hackett. And you said no performance change at all? No, none at all. The engine, we were surprised even when we put it in the test cell. We didn't have to adjust the engine in any way. We just took the the legacy fossil fuel out, put the new clean synthetic aviation fuel in, and it just worked straight out the door. It was lovely. The Fuel Project is a collaboration between the RAF and a private company founded by ex-Formula 1 chief Paddy Lowe. After 12 World Championship wins, he's entered a new race to produce entirely fossil-free fuels. Ones that could even be used in frontline military jets.
6: It was a really emotional moment when the first gasoline came out, because you look at it and and you have gases going in, uh, and this liquid comes out, which just smells and looks like gasoline, and, uh, you know, really incredible kind of alchemy.
1: The fuel was made at a small plant on the Orkney Islands, and unlike other synthetic fuels, this was produced using only renewable energy. It's made by combining hydrogen, extracted from water, and carbon dioxide, captured from the air. The end product can be dropped straight into a normal engine and works just the same as other hydrocarbons, petrol, diesel, or kerosene. Wayne Strachan is from IGCL Technology and helped run the production plant. We didn't produce a huge amount because that wasn't the purpose of the the demonstration, it was to prove that we could do it technically, and, uh, and if we move into a more commercial footing, and, you know, clearly we'll, we'll be able to produce much higher volumes. The RAF intends to be net zero by 2040 and fly an emissions-free aircraft by the end of the decade. Many of its fleet, including the F-35 and Typhoon, can already operate on 50% sustainable fuel. The reason they don't, at least yet, is the cost and availability of it, which is why the RAF has invested heavily in this project. Wing Commander Nicholas Sinclair is from the RAF's Rapid Capabilities Office. We have access to light aircraft and access to test pilots. They have the technology to produce the fuel. So it's a great opportunity for us to work together and really advance something that's great for everybody, right?
0: It's a planet that we all have to live on. So I think that that's the point for us. It's about stimulating the marketplace to understand that this is the direction the Royal Air Force is going in. A fuel that we want to see being adopted more broadly. Not just for one producer, but as a fuel for all of our fast air in the future.
1: Now, all eyes were on Glenn Pollard, the Guinness World Records adjudicator.
4: We've just got a little bit more research at headquarters, studying the documentation, but I think I'm happy to say that we have a new Guinness World Record title here.
1: The team behind this fully synthetic fuel claim they can scale production enough to completely defossilise all the RAF's aircraft by 2040, providing a secure, UK-made supply that could well change how the military's planes are powered forever.
0: Simon Newton reporting from Gloucestershire. Well, David Gordon is Senior Vice President for Rolls-Royce UK defence business. Among the engines it makes are the ones for the RAF's F-35 and Typhoon fighter jets. I asked if those planes could ever fly with a synthetic fuel like the one that powered this microlight test.
6: So absolutely they can. All of our products are cleared to fly on a 50% blend of sustainable aviation fuel or SAF. And that can include a synthetic fuel like the one we've seen flown on the earlier flight. And by 2030, we intend to clear all of our products to fly on a 100% blend of SAF. 100%,
0: that's quite a challenge, isn't it? If the engines had to be modified, how feasible is that? How big a job would it be?
6: So it very much depends on the age and type of the engine. So what we see is that the SAFs are almost chemically identical to a fossil fuel. Uh, The main area where it can differ is on their aromatic properties, and that tends to have an impact on things like seals. Uh, What we've seen on modern engines, such as the Trent 1000 that flies on the Dreamliner that we've been testing is actually, they behave very, very well. And we've successfully done 100% SAF flights in a, in a test environment. Mm. Um, so maybe for some of the older products could be a challenge. But I think for things like uh, the EJ200 and the Typhoon, it wouldn't be a big issue. Uh, the big challenge is around getting it certified.
0: Not a big issue, but are there potential drawbacks either on the effect of engine life or reduced performance?
6: So actually it's the opposite, particularly when we work with things like this synthetic fuel, we see a a potential improvement in performance because we can sometimes get improved specific fuel consumption or SFC, for example. So when we look at something like Tempest that we're designing today to work on SAF, as a given, and we'll do that for all of our new products as we bring them into service. We're actually seeing the potential for slight performance improvements, which we can reflect in the design of that platform as well.
0: Wow. Uh, So performance improvements means what exactly in practice?
6: So in practice, potentially more thrust or you get the same output for a smaller engine, which, you know, from a design perspective is really attractive.
0: The Chief of the Air Staff wants the RAF to be carbon neutral by 2040. That's just 19 years away. Will the technology to achieve that be ready in time, do you think?
6: So I think it is it is achievable. I think it's a really laudable goal that Air Marshal Wickston set. The way we'll get there is to use a blend of different technologies. So the advantage of SAFs is it's a drop in fuel, so we can use it as a substitute and effectively extend the life of those platforms. In the meantime, developing new technologies, and we've got a big focus on hybrid electric and electric, for example, as routes to take us away from dependence on hydrocarbons in the long term. But I think it's going to be a a sort of incremental approach. But I think the RAS right to be taking the stance it is because we need to take action now in order to meet those pretty aggressive targets.
0: That said, some climate campaigners describe synthetic fuel as greenwashing aviation because it still needs energy to make it. Can we really have carbon neutral military planes?
6: So, yeah, it takes a lot of energy to make it, but um, you can derive that from a renewable source or you can derive it from a nuclear source that is carbon neutral that gives you the potential to then create that synthetic product and hence, hence the net zero branding around it. So no, I, I would push back on the greenwashing. I think certainly from a Rolls-Royce perspective, we're completely committed to the decarbonisation agenda. We're actually going to spend 70% of our corporate R&D on decarbonisation projects going forward. And that's because we see the demands from customers like the RAF are are going to increase and we need to be able to step up to that. So it's not greenwashing, it's a very credible way of getting to those targets in a way that's good for the environment while still being able to maintain operational effectiveness, for, which for people like the RAF is obviously key.
0: David Gordon from Rolls-Royce UK, uh, Professor Michael Clark. Synthetic fuels have existed for a long time. It's cost that's held back their adoption. Can the RAF afford to spend more on fuel to meet their carbon neutral targets?
4: Well, they'll probably have to in the uh, in the next few years. I mean, the, the aviation fuel makes up about two thirds of all the fuel that the MOD uses. And although its fuel usage has gone down by more than 40% since the peak of operations in 2010, we, it still gets through, I think it's something like 750 million litres a year. So it's a lot of fuel. However, when you look at the MOD's Uh, carbon neutral targets. They've, They've been very vague until quite recently. And it's depended on technological breakthroughs which have yet to be made. But I have to say this one looks as if it is one. It looks as if this is one of those technological breakthroughs that they were betting on. And there will need to be some more. But this is good news, because I think this does put the MOD on a path to find ways of producing synthetic fuels. They may be a bit more expensive initially, but they will eventually become cheaper. So it's good news.
0: Now, a former senior army officer and the chairman of the Commons Defence Committee have issued a joint warning that the world's next pandemic could be man-made and weaponised. Hamish hey, de Bretton-Gordon and Tobias Aylward say despite the 1972 Biological Weapons Convention, biological engineering is starved of regulation and policing. They're calling for the UK to take a global lead and revamp biosecurity. Hamish hey, de Bretton-Gordon is now biosecurity fellow at Magdalen College, Cambridge. I asked him why he believes the chances of a man-made pandemic are greater than ever.
2: Covid has obviously changed the whole situation for the world. And it is identified to bad actors and others what effect a biological uh, agent or event can have. Hitherto, experts like myself have discounted the possibility of terrorists and bad actors using biological weapons because it was just too difficult. And the concern that uh, MP Tobias Elwood and I have is that there are so many laboratories around the world that are dealing in pathogens, like COVID, which are completely unregulated and unpoliced, we are now convinced that we must do something to properly regulate and police these many laboratories around the world where the next pandemic could be in.
0: So how exactly do you reduce the risk?
2: Well, we do have a United Nations mechanism called the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention. However, for a lot of reasons, Not least that the pharmaceutical industry does not like over-regulation of its laboratories. These have been unregulated and unpoliced, mainly because the international community has not funded the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention. It gets a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year to run on, where its sister organisation, the Chemical Weapons Convention, and its police force, the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which has removed 99% of chemical weapons from the world, is funded to hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And we believe to make the biological and toxic weapons convention effective, the UN, the international community, the wealthy nations must fund the biological convention to the tune of a couple of hundred million dollars a year.
0: It's all very well putting in new structures and tightening the rules. But if governments or non-state actors do want to engineer pathogens, they'll just do it and refuse to let the inspectors in, won't they?
2: Well, that, that is the challenge. And it is very true that both the Chinese and the Russian governments have not been overly helpful in finding out the origins of COVID. However, I think we take solace from the Chemical Weapons Convention which is supported by 99% of countries around the world and has done an incredible job. We are calling on permanent five members of the UN Security Council and ostensibly in our case the United Kingdom to lead on this.
0: And why do you think the UK in particular should set an example, take a global lead on this?
2: Well, firstly, as a permanent member of the Security Council, I think we have a responsibility to the globe I'm just outside Salisbury near Portland Down, which is probably the leading biological research laboratory in the world, so we very much have the expertise. You know, biological science could be the existential threat to the 21st century, that atomic science was to the 20th century.
0: And aside from trying to galvanise the rest of the world, what more should the UK be doing to protect itself?
2: Well, I think uh, the, this government in the UK reacted very well to the pandemic. My concerns and Tobias Elwood's concerns now look to the prevention of the next pandemic. And a key element of it is regulation and policing. And the other element is to have a biological early warning system. In essence, what we're looking at is creating a sort of global weather radar um, that would pick up pathogens as they develop. But hitherto, it's been very difficult to detect these pathogens. However, there is technology being developed uh, in this country that will very rapidly detect pathogens in the air and work out exactly what they are. So as hotspots develop, the government can take action. And on a global scale, if all countries were linked into a global early warning system, which in effect, in theory, the World Health Organization should have anyway, but doesn't. One can then control the spread of viruses and pathogens around the world.
0: Hey, Mr. Bretton-Gordon. Michael Clark. where does a biological attack sit in the UK's ranking of threats? And is it likely to get a rethink? Uh,
4: Not under present circumstances. I think Hamish is exactly right. And and to Elder it it certainly needs one. Um, But we've concentrated on chemical, and of course, on nuclear issues, we take those very seriously. Um, and the, the bio threat has been more a concern for terrorism, to be honest, than anything else. Uh, and yet, a biological threat from a state party is more li- much more likely uh, because of the capabilities issues than a terrorist one. It's far easier for a state to create a biological weapon than uh, for terrorist groups. And the mm-hmm. idea that, we, sh- that we, we can, as it were, take a lead in the United Nations. This is one of the things that global Britain really could do, take a lead on pushing for a much stronger regime on biological weapons it's all there on paper but there's no enforcement mechanism there's no real monitoring mechanism the the international community just found that too difficult to do when they were concluding the biological weapons convention so they put it on one side well 40 years later it's time to take it up again
0: I'm sure we'll be revisiting this subject. Professor Michael Clark. thank you very much for your time. My thanks to all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at sitrep and at bfbs.com slash sitrep. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye.